It's so lovely to be with you today. They're weird days we're living in, aren't they? So many strange things. And like oftentimes I'll say to my husband, Jerry, is like, if I told you like life would be like this a year ago, you'd have told me it was mental. It's like, we just didn't see any of this coming. Strange, strange days. Like, do you remember the days when people just used to call at your house? You used to call around and you used, they used to come in and you'd sit and you'd have a wee cup of tea and then somebody else would call and that was just like perfectly normal. And I think that's one of the hardest things about being Northern Irish in this time is because we're so deeply hospitable, aren't we, by nature. And like eating together and sharing a meal together, that's such a big part of who we are. You know, somebody calls at the door and you're like, you'll come in, oh, you'll come in, come on in, you'll have a wee cup of tea, you'll have a wee cup of tea, wee cup of tea, wee cup of tea, you'll have a wee cup of tea. No coffee, you'd rather have coffee, put the coffee on, love, wee, wee cup of coffee, you'll sit down, have a cup of and no Oh, it's nearly tea time. We biscuit. You'll have a biscuit. Have a biscuit. Do you know what? I'm going to put scones on. I'll throw on a wee, a wee batch of scones. No, you sit there. I'll be there in 10 minutes. 10 minutes. I'll get scones on. You sit there. And that's just the Hermes driver who was trying to deliver a parcel. <laughs> it's like, come on ahead in. We love it. It's so central to who we are as people. But actually, it's not just a Northern Irish thing. It's a global thing. You know, sharing a meal together is, is central in so many cultures. So many cultures. And actually, it's a really intensely biblical thing. I don't know if you've noticed, but the Bible talks a lot about food. It's like, it's my kind of book. It talks a lot about food. There are a lot of meals all throughout the Bible. And actually, when we read about them, we don't always understand the significance of them. Because in the ancient Near East, where the Old Testament is written... Uh, the culture around males had so many layers of social and spiritual significance. One of them, for example, is this. Oftentimes when people made a covenant, or we would probably nowadays call it a contract or an agreement, they would seal it by the eating of a meal. A meal was a, a symbol that a covenant was being entered into, or a contract was being entered into. So I suppose like today it would be as if, if you bought a house and you agreed the price and the date you were going to move in, then you'd sit down together and you'd have a big meal. I say bring that back. Having just purchased a house, that sounds like a much funner way to do it than having to sign 80 pamphlets or whatever they give you in the lawyer's office. Let's have a wee feast, far better. So they would, they would use it to signify that a, a contract or covenant had been entered into. One of the first times we see it in the Bible, one of the earliest times we see it, is in Genesis chapter 31. You might know Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his uncle Laban. And there's this moment where, we'll get into it in a minute, but it was dissolving a little bit their relationship and their partnership. And they enter into this covenant. And it says this in Genesis 31. This is an example of this happening. Verse 44, Laban says to Jacob, Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. And then in verse 54, he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. It wasn't just about generosity. It wasn't just about community. It was a contract. It was about covenant. It was a statement that said, you and I are in a binding agreement. Now, I want you to take that information and I want you to carry that back with you to the very first shared meal that we see in scripture. In Genesis chapter three, when the serpent, the enemy of our soul, invites Adam and Eve to sit and eat at a table that God had forbidden them to eat at, from a tree that God had said, don't eat. They receive an invitation to come eat. And in the moment that they eat, it's like a contract is signed. It's like an agreement is entered into. I accept your invitation, serpent. 
And that's where the story goes horribly wrong because it's one thing to enter into a covenant or a contract with a good person. In fact, in the Old Testament, in that era, in that day, often tribes would enter into covenant with each other. And what it meant was if an enemy tribe came to attack, their covenant partner would come and help them defend themselves. They wouldn't have to fight the enemy alone. So if you enter into a covenant or a contract with a good person, that's a really good thing. But here they're entering into a covenant with somebody who has got no good intentions. The serpent doesn't invite them to this meal because he wants a mutually beneficial relationship. We know from John 10.10, his desire is to, to kill, to steal, to destroy. If I can't kill it, I'll steal it. If I can't steal it, I'll destroy it. He has come to strip humanity of every single resource that humanity holds. A bit like you football fans are going to be so impressed with me right now with my football knowledge. This is the only thing I know. And it's only because my husband moans about it incessantly that I know it. It's a bit like, you know, when somebody rich buys a club, a big rich man comes in and buys a football club, doesn't care about the club, doesn't care about football, but just strips it of all of its finances. And they couldn't do that before they entered an agreement, but now they have access in. And once the access is in, they can strip the club of all the finances until that football club's on its knees. Because they didn't actually want anything mutually beneficial, they just wanted to take from the club. (coughs) Man United. Anyway, another story. See how he's got to me. This is what the enemy does in Genesis 3. He enters into a covenant with humanity of which we are part. And he does it in order to strip us of every good thing that we possess. And we are hopelessly lost. And if I was God, which you are very glad I am not. If I was God in that moment, I'd be like, right, no more food. That's it. Clearly food is the issue here. You guys can't handle the pleasure of food. No more food. God does the complete opposite. He begins to stuff the story full of food like there are meals everywhere. And in typical God fashion, he says, I'm going to take that thing that was used as a weapon against you and I'm going to make it work for you. And he begins to use this thing called redemptive hospitality. The redemptive meal becomes signature all throughout scripture. You, you, honestly, you'll not be able to not see it now. It's everywhere. And what happens is even the very calendar of God's people becomes stuffed full of meals where God invites them incessantly, come have the feast of weeks, come have a Passover meal, come have this meal, come have that meal. God keeps inviting these people to meals and it's not just about celebration and it's not just about remembrance. Every meal is about remembrance. It's about remembering something God has done, but it's not only about that. Every time these people say yes to God's invitation to come to the Passover, to come to the Feast of Weeks, whatever the feast is that they come to, every time they say yes, it is an act of defiance against the enemy of their soul that says, I was in agreement with you. I did sit down at your table, but you see now, I am in agreement with God most high. I have changed my covenant partner. And you may have taken everything from me, but he is going to restore everything to me because this is the promise of the covenant he has made. And so the Old Testament tracks that idea right through. And then we land in Luke 22. And after centuries of this repetitive meal, we finally get to Luke 22. And we read this all the time, but the significance of this moment where Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and this is the last meal he's going to have before he dies. Significant. Remember how significant the meal is. And Jesus says this in Luke 22 to his disciples. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you 
before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Verse 19, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal. Is it because he's hungry? Like, why has he eagerly desired it? Because for centuries, the story has been building to this point where the new covenant, the new contract is inaugurated and the old covenant and the old contract is done and the new one enters. And in that moment, the opportunity for us is sealed where before we were bound by a covenant made in Genesis 3, now we enter a covenant made in Luke 22, and everything changes. Because you, my friend, if you have decided to follow Jesus, you are now in covenant partnership (laughs) with Yahweh, God Most High, who puts stars in the sky and calls light into dark places and makes dead things live again. This is who you are now in covenant contract with. This is really good news, guys. This is really, really good news. So what I would love to do for a few minutes, takes a quick look at our timer, what I would love to do for a few minutes is explain to you some of the characteristics of the covenant that you're part of. If you've given your life to Jesus, if you've promised to follow him, if you've pledged your allegiance to him and you've surrendered your life to him, let me tell you some of the benefits of the covenant that you are in. You ready? Hold on to your seats, guys. It's a good covenant. It's a good covenant. The first thing I want to talk about is this. This covenant that you're in is a covenant of provision. It's a covenant of provision. Let's go back to Jacob and Laban, where we started in Genesis 31. By the time we meet Jacob and Laban, making this covenant together with each other, Jacob is already in a long line of the benefits of the covenant. Because you see, it began with his granddad, Abraham. Remember? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And actually, Jacob's very existence depends on the provision of the covenant. Because whenever God, Yahweh, meets his granddad, Abraham, and his grandmom, Sarah, they are in a position where they cannot have children and now they are aged and infirmed and there is no possible way for them to have children until they enter covenant contract with Yahweh. And all of a sudden, he provides them with the capacity to have a child. In the face of insurmountable opposition, they receive supernatural provision. Because that's what the covenant does. The covenant gives you, as it gave Abraham at the very start, supernatural provision in the middle of insurmountable opposition. There was no way out for Abraham and Sarah, but God made a way where there is no way because that's what God does for his covenant partners. And so for Abraham, provision looked like a child that was specific to him. Specifically, how God was going to provide for him was going to be a child. Now, Jacob's existence depended on that provision. Jacob wouldn't have been alive because Isaac wouldn't have been born and then Jacob wouldn't have been born. So Jacob's very existence is a declaration that God is a supernatural provider in the midst of insurmountable obstacles and opposition. But now it's time for the covenant to do something in Jacob's own life. And so we meet Jacob in Genesis 27. And his father is blessing him, which is the means by which the covenant, all the the benefits of the covenant get passed on to generation to generation. And the father begins to say this over Jacob in Genesis 27, 28. May God give you heaven's dew 
and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. And in that moment, we're led to understand that for Jacob, the specifics of what supernatural provision for him will look like will be wealth. Jacob will be a wealthy man. And by the time we meet him in Genesis 31, he's an extremely wealthy man. He is a, a big, big old herd of sheep. Dude has a lot of sheep and sheep equals money. So he was a wealthy man. But the thing about it was, this was supernatural provision in the face of insurmountable opposition because Jacob shouldn't have been wealthy. He shouldn't have been. And this is why his line of wealth had fallen apart a long time ago, whenever he had stolen the blessing from his brother. He stole it. And his relationship with his brother fractured so badly that his mom says, you need to leave or he will kill you. You will not survive this. And so Jacob is effectively in exile. So all of the wealth of the family exists over here. And Jacob has had to run away over here. And this is how wealth is transferred through the family line. But now all of a sudden he's not with his father. He's not in the home where the wealth, where the wealth is exchanged. He's had to run and he ends up with his uncle. He shouldn't be wealthy. It's insurmountable opposition. He shouldn't have ever been able to make a living for himself in that situation. And yet by the time we meet him in Genesis 31, he's a wealthy man. Why? Because when you're in covenant partnership with Yahweh, one of the benefits is supernatural provision in the face of insurmountable opposition. And can I tell you, I have seen this in my life time and time again. I do not come from a wealthy family. I do not have wealthy parents. And we grew up in a home where oftentimes money, like just putting food on the table was a struggle. But my mom was in covenant partnership with Yahweh and I watched him show up time and time and time again. And there's so many stories. I mean, if you meet my mom, Big Les, she's about four foot nothing. That's why we call her Big Les. If you meet my mom, she will keep you for four days telling you of the times that God showed up with supernatural provision in the midst of insurmountable opposition. But my favorite story is this one. Forgive me if you've heard it before. Of the day whenever it got to the point where she actually had nothing left to feed us. Four kids at the time. Nothing left to feed us. But she knew Yahweh would show up. She knew God Almighty was her covenant partner. And so she prayed all day for the food to arrive on the table by tea time. Tea time came and there was still no food. So she sat us down at the table. She sat the table. And my eldest brother, I was so little, I don't really remember it that much. My eldest brother said, I was starting to think, like, has she gone a bit? Because he knew there was no food. But she's setting the table. Still no food. She sits us at the table. She begins to say grace for a meal that doesn't exist. And at that point, my brother's like, she has lost it. She begins to say grace for a meal that doesn't exist. And as she says, amen, the door knocks. And there is a kid from across the street who says, my mum went a bit nuts in the kitchen today and she's made far too much. Could your family do with dinner? And the thing about that story I love the most is that God didn't just give us dinner. He gave her a night off cooking. (laughs) Because that's just who he is. You are, I know that these are trying times, but can I remind you of who you're in covenant partnership with? The one who still provides supernatural provision in the face of insurmountable opposition. But this comes with a warning. Please, please let me give you a warning around this. In an extremely materialistic world and a physical world, We can restrict what that meaning means to just material things. 
And all we expect God to provide for us or all we ever ask for is material things. God, get me the job. God, get me the house. God, give me, help me pay the bill. God, and our relationship with him and our expectation of him narrows down to the smallest of margins. And in John 6, we see Jesus get a little bit aggravated about this. At least that's my interpretation of the scripture. You should definitely read it for yourself and decide for yourself. John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, yeah? supernatural provision in the midst of insurmountable opposition. There was no food. There were thousands of people. They were in the middle of nowhere. No Asda, no Tesco's, no Just Eat that you could phone up and get a delivery. And yet Jesus manages to make a meal for these people. That's what he does. He provides physically because God cares about your physical needs. But what happens is the next day these people track him down. They hunt him down and he calls them out and he says this to them. You're only here for breakfast. That's my translation. You won't find that in the NIV. But that's basically what he says. You're only here looking for food and then there's this verse where I just feel the pain and the frustration in the heart of Jesus where he looks at them and he says I am the bread of life God in flesh is in front of them and the biggest thing they can think to ask for is breakfast their immediate need and he's like do you not know who you're dealing with I am God in flesh I am the bread of life And all you want is breakfast. And the number of times my relationship has diminished to that level with him. I need you to understand this morning, you are not just a body. You are not just a physical person with physical needs. You are a spirit and a soul. There is something eternal inside of you and it needs nourished too. You have needs that food and water cannot meet. And some of you this morning feel dead and dry and you don't even know why. And it's because your spirit is thirsty for something. And you even, I haven't even paused long enough to realize that you're spiritually thirsty, spiritually famished. And my plea to you this morning is that you would take some time this week at some point and still yourself enough and set aside the material needs for just a minute and pay attention to the condition of your own spirit and your own soul and ask holy spirit what do i really need and then ask your covenant partner to provide you with that because you are not just a body and you do not just have physical needs isn't it really good news that we're in covenant partnership and this covenant is a covenant of provision it's the best And it means that even in the middle of the chaos of this world, we can go to bed, we can put our head in the pillow, and we can go to sleep because we know who we're in covenant partnership with. Don't forget it. It's a covenant of provision, but I also love the fact that it's, and maybe maybe if I'm honest, this is my favorite bit. I love the fact that it's a covenant of peace. In fact, in the ancient Near East where the Old Testament is set, the covenant meal was often called the peace meal. And we see that here with Laban and Jacob because there's this moment where Laban and Jacob are making this covenant, this agreement. And in verse 51 of Genesis 31, it says this. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and you will not go past this heap to my side to harm me. Why was that necessary? These dudes, not family. What do they need to make an agreement like this for? Well, the truth is, these two enter this meal as enemies. Because I think think we've all had family long enough to know that just because we're family doesn't mean we're best friends. Sure doesn't. 
Family can be some, some really difficult territory for us all. And by the time Laban and Jacob get to the signing of this covenant, the making of this agreement, the, the eating of this meal, they, their relationship, if you read it, you think this is beyond repair, actually. Because there has been so much brokenness in their history. There has been so many promises made that were broken, devastated. There have been lies told. There has been money withheld. There has been contractual obligations broken time and time again. There was a whole debacle over him wanting to marry Rachel and ending up with Leah and all of the pain of that. I mean, we, this family is messed up. And they don't enter this table as friends. They enter it as enemies. But the thing about the covenant made is this. At the covenant table, we might enter as enemies, but we leave as friends. And this is the most spectacular thing to me about the entire covenant. Because I want you to remember Genesis 3 again. The moment we ate that meal, we, that was an act of war declared. That was an act of war. The eating of that meal was an act of war against God. I will not submit to your rulership, your leadership. I will not. It was an act of war. And in that moment, we who were the friends of God chose to become the enemies of God. We swapped sides. Act of war. And the problem with that is this. God wins every war. All of them. He is insurpassable in power. And so if you and I are on the other side of the war, and God wins every war, we were going to be shattered, destroyed. Because God is more powerful than any of his enemies. And we were now on the wrong side of the war. Except for this fact. God loved us. And so what God does in an act that defies logic is he himself crosses enemy lines, lays down his life in the middle of the battle, lays it down, mind you, it is not taken from him, he lays it down in order to take us from the enemy side and to bring us back onto his side so that we will not be forever destroyed in the battle of the ages. It is bonkers. Romans 5, verse 10 puts it like this. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. That's my favorite word. It needs to make a comeback. We were reconciled to him through death, the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? Over here, we were not safe. The, the end was written. We were without hope. We would have been hopelessly destroyed. But God came and reconciled us. He made peace. He was the great peacemaker. He makes peace with us, his enemies. We didn't do it. We were still at war with him while we were still in our sin, still making acts of war. He walks into the middle of the war that we have declared against him and he picks us up by laying down his life and he carries us home to this right side of the story. 
And this is the only reason that we're safe. We are not safe there. We were not safe there. But his deep love could not leave us to that end. So he came and he got us and he reconciled us. And he made peace. And so the communion meal initiated at the Last Supper in Luke 22 that many of us still enjoy today in the Christian church. That meal is a peace meal. It's a meal that declares God saying over you and over me, I make peace. I reconcile myself with you. We are no longer at war. I make peace. And this is the only reason any of us have a good story to tell. Because we were hopelessly lost. (laughs) But now we have been reconciled. It is a covenant of peace. And you know what? All of that's really lovely news, fun stuff. And honestly, I think you probably prefer I sat down now because the next bit's not so easy. Because yes, it's a covenant of provision, absolutely. A covenant of peace, 100%. But it's also a covenant of participation. There's two parties in the covenant. It's a covenant of participation. And when you and I come into this covenant by saying yes to Jesus... Because God won't drag us back across the line. He makes a way for us to come across the line, but he won't drag us back. He invites us. When we say yes to that invitation and we come back into covenant partnership with God, we leave that covenant with the enemy behind and we enter this covenant with God, we are a participant in the covenant. And we are a participant not just with God. We don't just enter a covenant with God. We enter a covenant with his body of which he is the head. We enter covenant with one another. We are in covenant with each other. And that is why Jesus says some of the sternest words. Jesus is often gentle and often gracious, but there are moments where Jesus is stern. And we need to pay attention when Jesus is stern because Jesus is not like that because he's had a bad day. Sometimes when you and I are stern, it's because we've had a bad day. There was a traffic jam and McDonald's got our order wrong. When Jesus is stern, it's because this really matters. And there's this moment where Jesus is perhaps one, of the, perhaps one of the most stern things that Jesus says to his people. In Matthew 5, he says this in verse 22. Now, I want you to listen to this. And if you've heard it before, I want you to try really hard to think like you've never heard this before. And Jesus is saying this to you today. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which means foo, is answerable to the court and in danger of the fire of hell. Now that does not make pleasant reading, but Jesus said it. Why is Jesus saying judgment's coming for us whenever we are basically, when we wrong our brothers and sisters in Christ? when we write that horrible Facebook post. When we sit here together and then in the car park we have a conversation about so-and-so in the third row. Why is Jesus saying, you are in danger of judgment? Because we're breaking the covenant. If you break a legal contract in our world, it ends up in court and there is judgment 
This covenant is no different. We promised. When we left that behind and we entered this, we promised that we may have come to this table as enemies, but we left it as friends. We made a promise to treat one another not as enemies, but as friends. And every single time that we treat a brother or sister in Christ as if they are not our very best friend, we are breaking a covenant that we entered and a promise that we made because this is a covenant of participation. And we have some things to do. 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it like this. Verse 27 of chapter 11. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, which remember is our covenant meal, our reminder of the covenant that we've entered. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And everyone ought to examine themselves. Before they eat the bread or drink the cup, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Paul is pleading with the divided church at this stage who are treating each other badly. And he's saying, guys, do you not understand the seriousness of what is going on here? You are eating a meal that states I am in covenant with these people. And then immediately breaking it. Sometimes breaking it in the middle of the meal by the way you participate in the meal. And you think that we can just keep getting on like this and there's not some judgment. I am desperate to become the kind of daughter of God who holds up her side of the bargain. And can I say I'm a million miles from that yet? I'm a million miles from it. Many times there are words found on my lips about another brother or sister that should not reside there. But honestly, I'm at a stage in my life where I can't bear the thought of breaking such a beautiful covenant anymore that was bought with such a deep price. And I am desperate for the Holy Spirit to do something inside of me that means I am always faithful. Not just to the Father, but to the brothers and sisters to whom I also belong. And so you and I, in this moment, what do we do with this information? Because now we're accountable for it, sorry. Now I've told you we're accountable. What do we do with this? Well, I think that the reasonable response is to pause for a second and just to remember. To remember the richness and the beauty of the covenant that we're in. And then to repent of the way that we've entered it and the way that we've occupied it. And the beautiful thing about it is repentance is possible. It's it's just always possible. I love that about Jesus. You know what I really love about Jesus? Jesus has this covenant meal with his followers, the Last Supper, knowing that just around the corner, they're all going to mess up. They're all going to break it in a million ways. Peter's going to be unfaithful. He's going to deny him. And then you watch what happens in the Gospel of John towards the end. Jesus dies, he's risen again, and do you know what he does? He goes to a beach, and he calls to those people who've broken the covenant, and he says, come have breakfast. Let me make you a meal. 
and you sit down and eat it in my presence. This is an opportunity for you to step back into the covenant. And in this moment, there is an opportunity for all of us to take our position the way that we should. And you know what I wonder? I just... I wonder, is the renewal the church so desperately needs and the world so desperately needs? That world needs a renewed church. I wonder, is the key to it some reconciliation inside the body and a change in the way we handle each other? And I wonder, would that kind of purity, would that make way for the power of God to invade his church in a way that would transform the world? I wonder, is that what's holding it up? I don't know. I I can't, like... The beautiful thing about God is he never forces us to do anything, and I don't plan to force you to do anything either. It's unreasonable. But I invite you this morning. I invite you to come back to the table. And I invite you to make amends with some of the people who you don't really want to sit at the table. And I want to invite you to move forward from this day as an active participant in the covenant of which you are a part.